Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Loungewear? Underwear? Those are two questions you might ask if you didn't realise that at BritishBoxers.com the answers are lounge here and under here. Um, That is that they sell super comfy loungewear and underwear made of luxury fabric. Not that they're inviting you to lounge at theirs or underneath theirs, which would be a bit weird and creepy. You name something comfy to wear. Go on, anything. No, not that. No, they don't do trousers filled with marshmallows and that wouldn't be very nice in the summer. Pyjamas, dressing gowns, hoodies, pants. Yeah, all of them. And British boxers make them superbly too while being part of the Conscious Advertising Network, paying their staff properly like, you know, everyone should and are all nice to the planet too. Also like, well, everyone should. What I'm saying is they're properly nice people who make great underwear under there, which isn't under anything, I don't think. I've not visited, but I'm almost certain they have a factory rather than underground lair. If you go to British-Boxers.com and buy nice things, then at the checkout use the promo code PARPOLBRO15 and you'll get a nice 15% off your order and then you can lounge here, there or anywhere you blooming well like. Felt presents Noutflix. A video on-demand service showcasing comedy in the northeast of England. All shows are donated by comedians and all money goes back into comedy in the region. For just £5 per month, you can get interviews, sketch shows, panel shows, kids shows, and stand-up specials from Lost Voice Guy, Seymour Mace, Gavin Webster, Nicola Mantelios, Simon Donald, George Zack, John Whale, Rachel Jackson, Raoul Pauly, Joby McGeehan, Zoe, Lee Kyle, John Scott, Anya Atkinson, Stephen Petty, Matt Reed, and many, many more. Sign up at netflix.co.uk and start watching now. Felt Now, by comedians for you. Noutflix. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that eschews both sidism, preferring backsidisms and commentary that's strictly one-dimensional. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and as lockdown is eased across Britain, with the Prime Minister and political jet Sam Boris Johnson warning the Indian variant of the coronavirus could cause serious disruption, scientists are concerned that it will be given a position in the Cabinet or as a special advisor to the PM before the end of the week. 
Is it even worth me doing this podcast anymore when what I could do is just copy and paste bits of old episodes and the only giveaway would be an occasional glimpse of hope in my voice which might make you concerned that I was either heavily medicated or had become vehemently right-wing and had tons to look forward to? I mean, stop me if you've heard this before, but also don't as you'll pause this week's podcast mere seconds in and then throughout. But once again, a new variant of the coronavirus who likes to reinvent itself more than Lady Gaga on a good week is having a jolly across the country, completely disregarding any advice on not travelling. Once again, the reason this variant is in the country is because India, the country it supposedly mutated in, wasn't put on the red travel list until far too late because the Prime Minister had some trade deals he fancied doing first, seemingly unaware that the main import that would arrive would be super popular despite no one actually wanting it. Once again, the government insisted that India didn't need to be put on the red travel list at the same time as adjacent countries Bangladesh and Pakistan, as it wasn't of concern, despite the Indian variant being called the Indian variant and mainly affected India and not, say, being called the Bangladeshi variant, the Pakistani variant or the, hey, one day I'd love to visit India, it's on my list, but I've got to save up first variant. Number 10 have defended not banning travel to or from India sooner, saying that the UK has some of the toughest border measures, which is true, except only for people, not germs, and it seems the Home Office feel the virus has more value in the country than someone coming over to work in the NHS. Home Secretary Priti Patel, who only books hotels that can provide an Iron Maiden, probably sees the particles as more beneficial than ministers in her department, as they'll work to reduce the population for free and at all hours of the day. Don't be worried though, because the vaccine should handle this current COVID upgrade, according to the Health Secretary Matt Hancock, a man whose mirrors in his home have to contain a picture of someone else in case he catches sight of his face and cringes so hard he gets rigor mortis. Matt Hancock has absolute confidence that the vaccines will work. Brilliant. Nothing more reassuring than the confidence of a man who'd happily have palmed off a multi-million pound contract for medical equipment to any Tory donor that told him they'd once seen doctors on daytime TV, so were fully qualified. To add to the ever-growing list of people who shouldn't have been given COVID contracts and definitely were, there's now former MP and 90s America sitcom supporting character in a hall of mirrors, Brooks Newmark, most famously known for resigning after sending dick pics to an undercover journalist in 2014. So I suppose it makes sense to give him a PPE contract as he knows the dangers of exposing yourself. Newmark had set up a firm with the owner of a dog food company and Hancock personally intervened in the awarding of £180 million to them to broker deals for protective equipment during the pandemic, likely because they showed him a bit of paper with the word pedigree on it and he thought that was enough. Hancock says it was perfectly reasonable for him to send an email when the country needed equipment, which it might have been, but it sort of depends on what was in the email and if the best person to be contacting online is someone whose history suggests he still mostly uses Flash Player. Contradictorily, because I don't think there's any other way the health secretary can function, Hancock also insisted there was never a national shortage of PPE in the first place, which would then make any contracts for PPE completely pointless. Or did he just mean he had a ton spare in his garage and he was waiting for the right family member or sex pest chum to distribute it for him first? Hancock has confidence the vaccine will take down the new variant, but that it's also doubled in cases in the last week in all age groups, which sounds like it's totally and utterly under control. Boris Johnson has urged for a dose of heavy caution, something that he's been regularly prescribed for himself, but obviously always spat it out or swap the tablets for mints. Once again, he's asking that everyone play their part, which is galling from the Prime Minister, who reportedly as a teenager didn't bother to learn his lines when in an Eton School production of Richard II, and appears to have continued in the same vein ever since. 
Much like both times last year, Johnson appears to be making it up as he goes along. And while you can hug people in restaurants from today, drink pints without catching pneumonia and use your phone in the cinema again, it is your fault if you catch Covid while doing any of that. It's definitely taking back control and restoration of freedom as promised, but like how if you were forcefully thrown into a pit with a T-Rex, you wouldn't feel that empowered if your captors shouted down that it's totally up to you if you stay quiet or not. Luckily, the government say they're fully committed to learning the lessons at every stage of the pandemic, but their problem is their concept of education means it'll only be after a huge cost and an assumption that they don't have to pay attention as their dad's got a peerage. There will be an independent public inquiry into the handling of the pandemic, but not until 2022. And it'll no doubt be chaired by someone who's only independent because they lost their job as an MP after trying to bum a beef eater or saying that the only way to stop a virus is by wiping out anyone with less than two surnames. Johnson told MPs that the inquiry would place the state's actions under a microscope because maybe if he says something to do with science now, people think he's been following it all along after all. I'm sure in the coming months the Prime Minister will also insist that an inquiry will put the past year in a petri dish for examination or will dissect it piece by piece before then accidentally saying it will provide a conclusion to the past year's genetics experiment then refuse to apologise and the Conservatives will go up in the polls by 10 points. Once again, Israel carries out airstrikes on Gaza and the world's politicians unite to tell both sides to show restraint. Israel clearly must show restraint from peace, otherwise they won't need to buy any more weapons from the US or UK, and Palestinians need to restrain from dying straight away so all the weapons can be used more than once. That would be great. We have to remember that absolutely both sides are responsible for this conflict, as if it wasn't for the Palestinians existing, the Israeli government wouldn't have to occupy their land and drop bombs on them, so it really is their fault too. And yes, Hamas are firing homemade rockets at Israel too, which is awful, but the state of the art Iron Dome defence system is mostly dealing with them, and in response, Gaza has been hit by endless airstrikes from warplanes bought from the US and UK, but hey, everyone has the right to defend themselves except the side you don't like most or something. To pretend this is an equal battle between two sides is really naive, when the strength of Israel's attack is, is as disproportionate as if I keyed your car because I was angry you wouldn't let me have any water, and you retaliated by killing everyone I've ever known and blowing up several hospitals on the way. 192 Palestinians have died since last week, including 58 children, and 10 Israeli citizens, including two kids. And all of that is just horrific, as there's never really a valid excuse to kill anyone, especially not children, even when they're being really, really annoying. Israeli forces demolished a press building too that was the HQ of Associated Press Gaza and Al Jazeera, claiming that Hamas were hiding behind it despite not providing any evidence. Which, if that is the excuse that stops it being classed as a war crime, then where do the Palestinians go from there? I mean, can't Hamas hide behind pretty much anything? Trees, large rocks, people with big hats, paintings with the eyes cut out? Israeli Prime Minister and bizarro Mel Brooks, Benjamin Netanyahu, is currently on trial for multiple corruption charges and had just lost the mandate to form a government after an election in early May saw his party win not enough seats for a majority. The opposition parties were about to form a coalition and unseat him, but oh no, now there's all this violence, so it'd be inappropriate to do that right now. Still, I'm sure there's a good and valid reason to bomb schools and it's just too complex for us to understand and you're not thinking about all the history and context. Netanyahu has warned that there's no clear end in sight, which could be referring to the attacks on Gaza or just his time as Prime Minister, as I guess you can't have another election if you know he's unable to stop ordering airstrikes. What's he to do? We all know that lives are cheaper than prison bail fees, so you just have to be economical. Netanyahu says they are acting now for as long as necessary to restore calm, because nothing brings calm like lots and lots of bombs.
The United Nations Security Council had met to discuss the violence, but failed to even agree on a joint message of concern. They did manage to cough out, though, that both sides must cease fighting, which is a tricky ask, as I'm not sure that's what either considers it, as with the Palestinians largely aiming for survival and Israeli forces seemingly just going for target practice. US President and Inoki Mushroom Joe Biden and his Secretary of State Andrew Blinken, who has the appearance of someone playing themselves on Saturday Night Live, they've rolled out the same old Israel has the right to defend itself chat while saying that terrorists are targeting Israelis and Israel is mainly targeting terrorists, you know, of all ages. There have been big protests around the world, including in Tel Aviv, for the Israeli government to stop the airstrikes. But like with every time before, unless there is international intervention, it'll once again depressingly be just up to when Netanyahu thinks he can keep his job, as enough people have died on both sides. Back in the UK, the Queen's speech once again included lots of things the government say they'll do, but probably won't, while completely ignoring the social care bill, as it includes two words the Conservatives are too embarrassed to admit they don't understand. Instead, her Madge sat on a gold throne and read out words scrawled on goat carcass, like you do in a modern democracy, and announced that the government will be getting rid of the five-year fixed-term parliament, meaning the Prime Minister can call a snap election any time he likes. And it's so-called because he'll choose the best moments to benefit his party and further break the country. There will be a skills revolution, which sounds a lot like a TIE group who embarrass students by trying to rap about job prospects. But it's actually just another way to make sure young people work for free. Yay! And there's also a bill ensuring free speech on university campuses, something that's extremely important right now with students, lecturers or visiting guests not having been able to say anything at universities for the past year on account of them being fucking closed. Universities Minister Michelle Donnellan, who has all the awareness of a bag of potatoes, confirmed that the free speech bill would indeed protect Holocaust deniers if they were denied a platform speaking at universities, as long as she said they didn't stray into racism. I suppose this is because the government much prefers racism to be done on purpose with intent. The IHRA definition of anti-Semitism includes Holocaust denial, so now universities will have the difficult choice of breaking that code and being accused of racism, or denying some tinfoil-hatted bigot a platform and then getting sued for blocking free speech. Potentially, there's some get-around here whereby a university could book a Holocaust denier to speak, but only inside an anechoic chamber where no sound could escape, and therefore win the day. Housing Minister and eyes poked into a kumquat, Robert Jenrick, told MPs that there had been a deeply disturbing rise in anti-Semitism in recent years after a video surfaced of a convoy of cars driving round near my way in North London shouting really, really vile, violent abuse at Jewish people. They were luckily apprehended by police, so I was quite surprised all the potholes around here didn't stop them first. Jenrick warned that the virus of anti-Semitism always masks itself as social justice, so he's going to be super livid when he hears it's being used by the Department of Education to promote free speech in universities. The Conservatives' relationship to racism continues to be so close that it's surprising Matt Hancock hasn't yet given it a contract to supply PPE. Just this weekend, MP and cis growing on the underside of a Pekingese dog, Michael Fabricant, referred on Twitter to Muslim pro-Palestine protesters as primitives, which is rich coming from a man whose entire outlook was outdated by the time the dinosaurs died. The Conservative Party have refused to comment on this. Maybe that's because they'd also have to then confirm Michael Fabricant is real and not a hallucinatory nightmare that they were hoping they could ignore and it might eventually go away. Or perhaps it's because racism for Tories only really counts if someone else does it. I mean, take Unite Union official and Mouse, Howard Beckett, for example. He tweeted that Home Secretary Priti Patel should be deported and the outrage that occurred caused the Labour Party to suspend him and figures across the right to condemn him before he himself also apologised. It's tricky because I can see how it might be interpreted as problematic, not least because deporting Patel would mean inflicting her authoritarian nature on another country, which simply wouldn't be fair to them. And it'd be far more effective sending the entire cabinet deep, deep into space. 
But Beckett's tweet came after the brilliant community of Pollock Shields in Glasgow stood up to immigration officers attempting a dawn raid to detain two Indian men during Eid Mubarak, with local residents lying down in front of the van and hundreds surrounding it until the men were let go. According to Pretty Patel, though, these people were a mob, which isn't true as they were just people standing up for other people, whereas the Home Office are bundling people into vans never to be seen again, and that seems like far more mafia behaviour to me. Still, Beckett's comment was silly as it allowed everyone to distract from the reality of policies that have seen people detained again and again simply for arriving in the country and then pushed into squalid barracks with no running water, and instead they could just say, oh, look over there, a man's done a tweet that I could read with the worst intentions, so he must be the real evil here. In reality, we all know that if Pretty Patel didn't know who she was, she'd have tried to deport herself by now. When not criticising people for showing humanity, Patel has been accused of lobbying for a healthcare firm trying to get one of them government contracts Matt Hancock's friends keep boasting about. The company, run by a friend of the Home Secretary, received a contract for £103 million to supply face masks, and if it does come out that Patel sorted it as a favour to her pal, that will be her third breach of the ministerial code. Well, rules are there to be broken, right? You know, apart from the ones around visiting the UK, and if you have a form that's incorrectly filled in, then you go into a detention centre and then stuck on a plane straight back home, even if it isn't your home, without any support or provisions. LOLs. Once again, speaking of rich people getting away with shit, the Prime Minister was let off an outstanding £535 county court debt from October last year, probably because he wouldn't have been able to afford it without a Tory donor stepping in to help. It's a shame the court didn't send bailiffs round though as they could have recouped the costs with just a corner ripped off of the gold wallpaper in the number 10 flat. County court judgments for the rest of us plebs can be used for banks and loan companies to decide whether you're reliable enough to lend money to, which must be why the Prime Minister only borrows cash from his friends. Former Prime Minister and sunken arse cake David Cameron reported to two select committees this week about his lobbying failures, and rather than defend his actions, he sort of somehow made himself seem like an even worse human being if that was possible, when the only thing stopping him from being Britain's worst of a Prime Minister is everyone knowing that Johnson still has time in office left. Cameron said that the now-collapsed Greensill paid him far more than he got as Prime Minister, which seems weird that they saw what he did at number 10 and thought it was worth spending extra cash so he could cause their downfall too. Maybe it was their version of economical dignitas. Cameron insisted he wasn't motivated by money though when he sent 56 texts to government ministers, but was doing it in the national interest. Really? I don't think in the midst of a pandemic, as the numerous public services still hadn't recovered from 10 years of austerity, the public was thinking, well, I hope Davy Cameron can get a new big shed after all this so he can social distance from his other one. If anything, any situation that leads to us having to see his slapped puffball face back on our screens is very much the last thing anyone wanted. Once again, another former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, a man whose default face is Bilbo Baggins getting to see the ring again, has intervened in Labour being a mess by saying that the whole party needs total deconstruction and reconstruction to win. Ah yeah, that totally worked for Iraq, didn't it, Tone? I'm guessing he's hoping it can be bombed and the US go in and take all the valuable bits. Labour leader and Motorola Dynatech 8000X, Keir Starmer, has decided that what the party really needs is a whole new manifesto, an economic offer not based on any previous manifestos or the 10 pledges that he clearly got elected to be leader on. If it's not based on any previous manifestos, all of which were about providing an alternative political view to the Conservatives, what will it contain? 12 pages of wingdings and a word search for you to find your own meaning to it? 
One that contains page after page of lots of words like change that ultimately mean nothing in a sentence. Or perhaps it will be a truly transformational and modern manifesto and not be a manifesto at all, but one of those annoying fucking motorised scooters or a non-fungible token. Once again, skin wrapped around a fart, Lord David Frost wrote an article telling the EU to stop point scoring and rethink the rules around the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, the protocol that he and the British government designed. And Frost said he would sue the EU for sticking to the rules that he came up with. We can, of course, assume from this that he's either a massive idiot, a massive liar, or has an identical twin that spends their days pretending to be him and putting things in place that will later thwart his intentions. The European Commission responded to Frost's piece like you might an angry child by reminding him that this is what they all agreed on, and I'm guessing if that doesn't work they'll have to ply him with ice cream until he forgets about it. Culture Secretary and extra in Postman Pat Oliver Dowden said Northerners must be included in prominent positions on cultural boards to erode the, and I quote, woke values held by a liberal London elite, by which he means he's upset that some museums are pointing out their artefacts are the results of slavery and colonisation and, you know, talking about their history as opposed to being proper British museums and saying, yeah, those mugs wouldn't have looked after this gold tomb so we took it before they could ruin it. Dowden said he wants a grandparent from Hartlepool or Hurwitz to feel as represented in their decisions as a millennial in Islington. So I think that means he won't be listening to them either. And once again, the DUP has elected an out-of-touch homophobic creationist as their new leader. The hilariously named Edwin Poots, a man constantly in the incorrect aspect ratio, said he wants his party to be healing and fit for purpose. But obviously not, you know, evolve. Global politics there, with more repeats than a Christmas TV schedule. Roll on a new series with less predictable storylines and characters that don't do things that real people wouldn't be stupid enough to do. Oh, honestly, writing this week's episode without repeating a single gag from previous shows was really hard. I probably have repeated some stuff in there somewhere. I absolutely can't remember or be bothered to search through all the scripts for the past 231 episodes. But if politicians can repeat the same phrases, they make the same horrendous fuck-ups for the 7 billionth time, then I think I'm allowed to retell a gag for 12. Ofs, uh, there was some Gaza chat in there because I like to turn off at least half my listeners every single episode. It's amazing how inflammatory the subject is when so many of our stories and folklore and general rhetoric is all about sticking up for the little dude like David and Goliath or um, Scott Pilgrim. But when it comes to the Israeli government, and yes, I'm being very clear, that's who I'm criticising, not every Jewish person who's ever existed, otherwise my nan would get upset with me, and I don't think she's remotely responsible for what's happening in Gaza, not least because, well, she supports Palestinians, but also because she's been stuck in her flat for over a year now due to COVID, and she wouldn't be able to do sort of much military strategy by phone as her hearing is terrible. But yeah, what I'm saying is when it comes to the Israeli government, our narrative's the opposite, isn't it? Our narrative about the little guys, what little guys, completely the opposite. Ugh, it's harrowing and upsetting. I've seen all the shit excuses online. Oh, but Hamas are terrorists. Yeah, sure they are. And they don't seem like nice dudes. But are you saying that the British government should have levelled all of Northern Ireland when the IRA attacked? Um, actually, MPs like Johnny Mercer probably would have voted for that. Oh, well, why aren't you condemning Hamas specifically when saying anti-Semitism is bad? Well, yeah, of course, if you don't specifically mention how shitty Hamas, who are terrorists, are in every single thing that you say about Israel, then clearly you're best buds with them and have the pin badge and membership card. Ah, oh, fuck's sake. Ah. Uh, Oh, but I haven't seen you tweet support for the the Uyghur Muslims who are being oppressed in China. Well, then that's your fault for not looking at every single tweet everyone does. Not mine for not sending each one individually to you uh, like some sort of alert system so you can check my morals are coherent. Of course, if you don't condemn absolutely every human rights violation in the world in one tweet, then apparently you absolutely support all the ones that you're not mentioning. That is definitely the case, right? That always feels like a cover for someone who doesn't care about the oppression of anyone trying to make themselves feel better for a psychopathic lack of empathy by pretending that you two couldn't give a shit and potentially also keep body parts in your freezer nobody it is just you 
Anyway, it's all very useful shouty argument takedowns that make the whole thing so tedious to talk about, don't they? Um, I'm just saying that really, what the general consensus should be as human beings in some sort of weird, ideal, utopian world, this naive, stupid world that I would love to live in, um, is just for people to stop killing people. And when Israel are killing 20 times the amount of people in Gaza than uh, Hamas rockets have killed Israeli citizens, obviously it's not remotely a competition. That'd be a horrible thing to think. That's obviously also shit and horrible. Um, But it does sort of fall then to Israel to kill less people right I mean it's also weird that it's now the general consensus to either condemn both sides or apologise for supporting Palestinians as though that definitely means you hate Israeli citizens in that kind of tribal way that all politics has gone no of course not I hate everyone equally so the only way I won't have to care about any of them is if there's some sort of peaceful solution then nothing would ever be on the news and it'd all be fine that's that's my ideal I like the news to just be full of stories about animals doing something bonkers that's all I want is it too much to ask Ah, sorry, that was quite a rant for the rambly bit, wasn't it? But there's not much else going on in my life apart from battles with my agent uh, who refused to have a bath the other night because she said it was too watery in there. Yep, yes it is. I mean, that is a bath. I don't really have the mental capacity to argue with that when it's pretty much correct. Um, Someone online said I should have told her that when she was in it, it'd be less watery and more toddlery. So I will try that next time. That is a really good really good tip uh, last night uh, she had a tantrum because we wouldn't let her visit an imaginary friend's house that doesn't actually exist oh god I wish someone would have warned me that a large chunk of parenting is tackling problems that have absolutely no solutions and it's that sort of shit that makes looking at the situation in Gaza seem really easy in comparison I swear right uh, thanks tons this week to Tony and Joe for the Kofi donations and if you fancy fueling this show or well my life now that the new variant is clearly going to ramp up the day before my first live gig back if you're wondering about the timeline of how it will occur um, then you can chuck us a quid at ko-fi.com forward slash bro. join the patreon.com forward slash bro, where I do absolutely zero extra stuff because I'm too busy trying to get a three year old to have a bath um, or at the ACOS supporter page alternatively as you might have heard at the top of the show uh, the kind lot of British boxers have now given me a 15% off code to flaunt at you should you fancy buying pants from them uh, and then I'll get a wee bit too which is very nice so you can use the code parpolbro15 at british-boxers.com to get that the other advert this week that you probably heard was for Noutflix, which is a non-profit video on-demand service which is being set up by comics in the Northeast, such as the very, very funny Lee Kyle, who you heard in the advert. Um, and he's part of a comedy community who are running their own gigs for the benefit of acts that really, really need it after the past year, uh, but also for the local area too. And as far as I understand, Noutflix is going to be a streaming service, but also a membership scheme, giving money off gigs and other stuff. There's going to be tons and tons of comedy content on there. Um, and it sounds brilliant. And the beginnings of a proper community interest comedy Comedy group which feels very long overdue so give that a go at noutflix.co.uk um, they aren't even sponsoring this podcast I'm just giving them a shout as they are all very good very funny people oh and lastly I forgot to give Barry a shout out for helping me uh, get last week's guest James Montague uh, on the podcast um, he also lent me James's book The Billionaire Cub uh, so I could read it and he seems to think I'll actually send it back once I've finished it which is hilarious thanks Barry Right, on this week's show, I've got a guest I've been wanting to chat to uh, for ages, the brilliant, brilliant Darren McGarvey, a.k.a. Loki, the Scottish rapper. Um, if you haven't seen his Class Wars show, it's still on iPlayer, so get on that. Plus, there's a bit in the middle about Israel-Palestine, just in case any of you are still clinging on and listening by then. Class warfare might sound like a graphic novel set in a highly competitive school for assassins, but in actuality, it's what's been happening in Britain for, well, ever. Everything from your education, job and even when you're likely to croak it still weighs heavily on your financial and societal circumstances. And if you're in a school for assassins, it can really, really lower your life expectancy. Sorry, wrong class warfare again. 
Over here in Blighty, we have one of the largest inequality gaps in the Western world between the richest and poorest in society, with many in work still unable to afford basic living costs, while those at the top earning millions just for knowing Matt Hancock. Though to be fair, that probably does take quite the toll on mental and physical well-being. Part of the problem with the class system here, apart from the fact it exists in the first place, is the way in which those at the very top of it get to dictate just how it's discussed. Which is largely not properly at all, not least because there are very few working class people in Westminster or in the media, and that's why currently there's this stupid discourse about appealing to working people and not the metropolitan liberal elite, who to be fair aren't working people because youth unemployment is also at a high. According to the Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden, what working class people really want, rather than, you know, affordable housing, jobs that pay properly, quality of life, uh, that sort of thing, is actually making sure statues are protected, flags are really, really big, and to be used as political pawns in a game the Conservatives are exploiting someone on minimum wage to play for them while they go and shoot grouse and launder money. So much of the past 40 years of politics has been dictated by what the main parties say working class people need without ever actually asking them, as that would mean mixing with them and talking to them and they couldn't imagine anything worse. But until inequality and class are discussed in deeper ways than thinking anyone who drinks coffee and uses a laptop is automatically an oligarch who controls all the museums and how everyone in North East England only eats chips and spends their days shouting at the sea in case of invaders, then little is going to change. And let's face it, that assassin school is probably only for wealthy kids who can afford the fee and due to a lack of equipment, everyone else in state schools would have to bring their own sharpened pencils if they wanted to duel. This week, I spoke to Darren McGarvey, a.k.a. Loki, the Scottish rapper. If you don't know Darren, well, then we can't be friends as you clearly don't want or read good things. Starting out as a rapper who quickly became known for his albums exploring themes of identity, class and nationalism, Darren made waves with his book Poverty Safari in 2018. His writing gave a voice to people from deprived communities all over Britain, and the book won the Orwell Prize that year for being, as the judges said, exactly the sort of book that George Orwell would have wanted to win. Since then, Darren has hosted two TV series for BBC, Darren McGarvey's Scotland, looking at poverty and inequality, and then earlier this year, Class Wars, which is a brilliant and at times very upfront investigation into how social class shapes our lives and identities. I've been wanting to get Darren on the show for a while, and I was really chuffed when he agreed to let me ask him questions about class, but also Scottish politics right now, as well as shit south of the border too. We had a really good chat. Hope you enjoy. Here is Darren. Hey Darren, I'm so I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of yours for ages, and it is it's great to have you here. And listen, I, I thought we'd start with you, you tweeted the other day about things. Uh, you were tweeting some brilliant stuff about politics, basically in England, and you're saying that that's because stuff in Scotland is pretty much the same. And I wanted to ask you about whether that's a good or a bad thing. And then, of course, Pollock Shields uh, on Friday, there was the brilliant um, community protest stopping uh, two people being taken by by immigration officers. Um, and I guess that's that's not the same as normal, is it? That's a really it, a brilliant and really uh, heartening event. Yes, there are there are some frustrating aspects of Scottish politics being currently in a sort of suspended animation in terms of there are many issues that I think many of us would like to discuss, but everything is currently viewed through a constitutional lens. And even issues such as uh, the action in Pollock Shields uh, at uh, over the, the weekend there, sorry, during the week there, um, even when that's not about constitutional politics and that's actually uh, bipartisan, uh, co- organic community response, then uh, that eventually becomes subsumed by constitutional politics anyway on both sides of the equation. Now, I know that that happens in England as well, but in England what you're seeing is a real realignment of traditional 
allegiances and alliances and politics, culture, uh, economic debate. And that's fascinating to me because many people will make the assumption that Boris Johnson is popular because people are idiots. But actually, if you're only looking at politics through the low resolution lens of the London mainstream media that comes up with terms like red wall that doesn't actually mean anything and no one in these communities uses it, then of course you're going to have to make assumptions about voting behaviour. But if you actually understand the history of these communities, their relationship with the Labour Party, how Labour's taken them for granted, and then also after 10 10 or so years of Conservative government, while austerity hasn't actually helped much and these communities' class interests haven't been advanced much, the Conservatives have definitely been making good mood mood music to these communities about matters of uh, national sovereignty, matters of culture, the excesses of online identity politics, and also Rishi Sunak's been very cleverly targeting infrastructure investment, which doesn't make headlines, but a train line in Darlington is a big deal for people in Darlington, and and people can reach out and touch infrastructure projects in their community that are a result of voting Conservative. So, you know, you, you have to think harder if you think it's just because people are idiots. Do I agree with them? No. But I don't think it's necessarily about them being stupid. No, well, it was it was interesting that the Hartlepool thing, and that you know when you sort of look at the votes and you look at the votes the Conservatives got and the votes that the Brexit Party used to have uh, before they disappeared, compared to the votes Labour had, and it's it's less that more people voted Tory, it's more that people didn't vote for Labour anymore. So you know, is that just a a case of? I mean, and and I say this as as a former Labour voter, not anymore, but they're not really reaching out to people. Is is it Labour not reaching out to people anymore? Or is it the Conservatives managing to reach out to people for, in a different it's, way? It's a hangover. It's, it's a number of different things. Um, let's not forget that the, the Conservatives haven't just been winning handsomely because, they, um, because people in these communities have had a sudden change of heart. There is also the voter apathy aspect, which has to be considered. But there is also the fact that the Conservative Party is very well funded uh, and a lot of the gains that they've seen uh, when Boris Johnson came in and subsequent in 2000, uh, subsequently from that, as a result of uh, very well funded, slickly run campaigns, uh, producing all sorts of literature. Uh, and a lot of this is funded by aristocrats and bankers and stuff. So it's, it's, it's interesting because these are people who are paying for the Conservative cause to be advanced. But the Conservative cost, co- cause in economic terms is not really, it runs contrary to the interests of working class people. So I think it's also symptomatic of the fact that ordinary working people have become resigned to the fact that there is no longer any discussion about the economic settlement. Whether a Labour, whether a Conservative, there's no daylight between them on economics. And so they look at the other areas of divergence. And this is what uh, this is what mobilizes people politically now, because we we're in a kind of we're in this place where neoliberal economics is not up for discussion. This is just the way we're going. So let's argue about flags. Let's argue about gender. Let's argue about Dr. Zeus books. And I don't say that dismissively. I understand that you know while you get the worst examples of both sides constantly presented as clickbait and social media. I do think that this culture war is being presented as a simulation of change 
it's it's something that people can become invested in uh, that that isn't really going to change their quality of life. It's not really going to advance their objective economic interests. And then obviously in Scotland, we are, I think what, what Scotland and England have common is that people have turned away from the Labour Party. And part of that is about the hangover from their massive electoral coalition that, that saw them win three consecutive general elections because that was an elect that was an elector an electoral coalition that was stitched together with vague values talking about tough on crime tough on the causes of crime what does that mean it means nothing so eventually you can only you can only adjoin all of these irreconcilable parts of the, the electorate together for so long before the splits open up again. And Labour's dealing with the hangover of that because you can't please everyone. And when you try to please everyone, you please no one. So do you think, I mean, because in, in Scotland as well, the the SNP in a way not, didn't replace Labour as such, but, you know, they're they're in opposition to the Conservatives as well as sort of uh, pushing for independence and all the other things SNP do. I, I suppose there's absolutely no need for Labour if you've got the SNP taking on the Conservatives in the way that they do. Well, that's how Labour has chosen to play it strategically. I mean, what they have done is, first of all, they, they campaigned against the independence referendum uh, and then they had to deal with the blowback from that when uh, the SNP effectively absorbed the yes movement. Um, and then you also have to deal with the fact that Labour hasn't been able to come to a sensible, in my view, a sensible position on the referendum. It's caught between the potential of gaining a lot of voters back by softening its rhetoric on independence and also losing a significant section of the unionist vote. But I would say that they should cut their losses because the Conservatives are the only party that gain in this circumstance. And I think that Labour could come to a place where they could campaign against they could basically just have a, a a situation where they could members of the Labour Party could campaign depending on whatever they personally feel, but the Labour Party as an institution is not opposed to the principle of another referendum, and so that would place it in a, 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 a somewhere that would make it less of an obstacle, and I think that it would benefit from that longer term. But yeah, Labour Party has big problems, and especially when historically it exists to advance the interests of working people, but it doesn't even have a coherent economic analysis of the country anymore. You know, it's not, it, it, it doesn't even talk in the language of class. It's all us values, Pish, which doesn't really mean anything. You and I can both believe in houses, you know, and, and we can both believe in the principle everyone should have a house. But if you're a landlord and I'm a tenant, that value system gets thrown out the minute the rent's due. And that's the problem when you just use values to try and glue an electoral coalition together. Yeah. And it's it's also, you know, that thing that they, they mentioned it again a few weeks ago about bringing back the kind of antisocial behaviour orders. And it's rather than talking to people, seeing what issues are, seeing why, you know, people may be, I know, I just throw it out there, like stealing or, or why they're being causing noise or whatever the issue they think is antisocial, rather than dealing with it and sorting out the problem and helping people, it's like just fine them, put them in prison. There's no, there's no actual care for what the causes of these issues are and how to properly solve them. Yes, I, I, I think that where, um, where Labour has tried to, kind of have it both ways on matters of law and order and crime. 
you'll find that the rhetoric is is pretty soft, but the reality is different. And one of the one of the key features of Blairism uh, that a lot of people don't really acknowledge is the cultural prong of it, which was the kind of ascendant image of the chav, um, you know, or the drunken mm. lout, or Anne Robinson berating people on TV, Jeremy Kyle, which was just institutional abuse, monetized abuse. And this was something that really um, came as, as a result of, of Blair's uh, everyone just wants to be middle class. That was the Blairist fantasy. And I think that's what the people arguing for this kind of reheated Blairism sort of, it's an it's a form of escapism for them almost because when you when you when you really analyze this adults in the room view that they have of themselves what it really reveals is that kind of paternalism it's that managerial paternalism that has really turned people off um and i don't know why the labor party are sending remain voting mps into the red wall in the first place <laughs> but there you go <laughs> It's completely, it's completely bonkers, isn't it? It's, it's amazing how I, I don't consider myself sort of politically literate or, you know, politically tactically aware. And I just looked at that and went, this is the worst thing you can do. It's sort of, there's so many things they do that even I feel I look at and go, no, why would you do this? That's the worst thing you could, that's got to be on the top list of things you wouldn't do. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. I was just quite, quite quickly going to say, I mean, when you see Blair on television, you can see, you know, he's still a very skilled communicator. He thinks very deeply and strategically about things. He understands the connective tissue between the different branches of government. And so, in a sense, he's qualified to talk about what he's talking about. But I would say Tony Blair, in reality, is as, if not more, divisive than an issue like Brexit. You know, so this you've got people who in the background of Labour who think maybe, maybe one day Blair will come back and it's just not going to happen. And I think that really does show, um, you know, one, how dependent a political party is on a decent leader. Uh, but also this kind of looking back the way to Blairism is, is, is evidence that they're bereft of ideas and humility. There was, there, I always feel like the. I mean, there's many things that, that Tony Blair did that uh, I'd happily we could fill a, an hour podcast criticizing, but but mainly that you know the Iraq war protests, like the biggest protests in the country against a war that had happened, you know, for many years, and he just did nothing. It just did nothing to to dissuade him from from sending people to death for no yeah. reason. And um and it always feels like that was the beginning of like people losing trust in politicians. And even though Boris does that, you know, Boris Johnson does that all the time now, it feels like it started so long ago that Tony Blair's the one that we can never trust again because Yeah, it, you know, he ignored yeah. us. No, exactly. And obviously, most people will never know what it's like to rise to that position of power and have to take momentous decisions that change and sometimes ruin people's lives. Um, but I think that even the people who supported the war based on what Tony Blair was telling us at the time, based on the very kind of generous media coverage during the kind of war effort, you know, a war is when two armies are fighting, but let's not get caught up in the technical stuff. The, 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 the subsequent investigations into what drove those decisions and some of the falsehoods that got out, whether he knew they were falsehoods or not, reveal that it was a mistake. 
right? It was a serious mistake, a serious miscalculation. There was no planning for it. So even if you don't take the view that he's a war criminal, you have to accept that he uh, and his decision to align Britain with America, because that was what drove the decision. It wasn't about Saddam Hussein, really. It was about him saying, in this post-9-11 world, we need to click up with the United States. We need to be their primary ally. And that was what drove it. And he took a gamble and he fucked it. But he also fucked it for a million Iraqis uh, and also public trust. And and I think people just want to dismiss the impact that that has on public discourse. But I think it is quite significant. It's absolutely massive. And it's it's sort of bringing it back to like Product Shields on, on, on Friday. Um, you know, one of the things, I think it's something that you retweeted actually about how Holyrood is is very very middle class as as a parliament, but even you know uh, even sort of Nicholas Sturgeon I think tweeting support of the people that came out in Pollock Shields that felt massive and I know it's like a big thing in England a lot of sort of lefty friends I have will see like Scotland as a left wing like haven because of it but I, I know the SNP aren't quite aren't quite left wing for yeah, well, many they, reasons they, and uh, oh go on so no I can't, uh, I just, just the, the, the Scottish government are in charge of the police force that went into the community in the first place. So I think what the what the um, what the Scottish government had done was it could see the way the tide was turning, and so it kind of it tried to insert itself in a way that perhaps wasn't helpful. Eventually, the police withdrew after about seven hours, but this wasn't to do with the SNP. This was to do with highly organised, socially connected community coming together. It was sheer strength in numbers, but not just numbers. It was it was the result of training. You know, activists in the community training other people in the community. Here's what you do when you see an immigration enforcement squad, right? You phone this number. So they create phone trees, or what that's what you would have called them before in activist communities. Um, people know who to contact. They know how to respond. They know how to speak to police if they're spoken to. And all of these things taken together are a result of an almost kind of, and I say military, not to be provocative. I don't mean that there's a war going on. I just mean in terms of thinking tactically and objectively about how to achieve an aim or a goal. This is how activists uh, and, and communities work. And so it was really, not, the, the SNP obviously can't, can't do much without politicising it. It's a political party. But I think this narrative of Scotland being better than England or Scotland being some kind of moral force, we have just as many, if not more, people who would have been happy to see those people taken away and thrown in a, a, a detainment place um, who, are, who, 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 who want immigration levels down, you know, who are pro-hostile environment policy. So I don't think it speaks to any fundamental nature of the Scottish character. Uh, it's just that some people are organised and that's what you can achieve when you get organised. Yeah, they were amazing. Is it the Refugee Charity, isn't it? Is that right? Refugee, um, there, there's a number of different overlapping uh, right. groups operating in Glasgow currently. I did a fundraiser for Refugee a, a few weeks ago, actually. Um, but you're talking about activists that are really coming into their and I say activists, in, in this culture, the word activist now like suggests something sinister, you know, like it's people that are trying to kind of like 
you know, change your child's gender at the age of three or something. Anytime you're getting the name activist seen in the press, it's always around some kind of extreme clickbait example. But the people who are saying these men need to be subjected to the rule of law, what they don't understand often is that the Home Office is acting against the rule of law. They're trying to get these people deported before they've had access and exhausted every legal possibility. So the Home Office's strategy is not, they're not turning up because it's time for them to go. They're chancing their arm that they can get them and get them out before a lefty lawyer is able to get involved and say, no, actually, you legally can stay or here's an application process that you can go through. So the, the activists are... Uh, the activists are actually organisers and they're very well educated and they're very um, committed and they have many, many positive traits that working people who were always told are against all this stuff, I think would admire. But the big, big thing is also these working people uh, who apparently all think we're one mind and it's just this big homogenous blob of racist sentiment. Every right that working people have comes as a result of similar action that we've seen in Kenmuir Street last week because rights aren't just handed out by powerful people in the state. They have to be forced to make concessions. And this is just the latest area of disagreement, I think. And it's one of the things I wanted to ask, like, because I, I think all the news, like, all the news we get down south about Scotland is just independence, independence, independence. We so rarely get things about individual policies, individual issues that go on in Scotland. And I wondered, well, A, I wonder what the real issues are in Scotland right now and what people are actually worried about. Is it all just independence and nothing else? Because I don't believe that that's true. And the other thing is, I suppose, you know, with things like seeing see, see the action on Friday, is that an area that Scotland would be better with if there was an independence or are you sort of worried that you know with with sort of concerns about it being a middle class parliament there'd still be mm. all these issues that wouldn't change at all i should um, just say by the way i should say my view is that with the tories in england everyone should just escape and get away as far as quickly as they can so i think yeah. i can go for it man but you know yeah that's my, my concern is like how would it be for people there and and, and the things that worry you day to day yeah, um, in Scotland, first of all, my my interest in independence is purely because uh, is is purely about the issue of proximity. I think the further you are away from somewhere, the harder it is for you to understand it. This is evidenced, you know, by all of the the, the commentators in London recently talking about issues affecting Scotland and just saying one silly thing after another. And that's not even that vast a distance there. And, you know, think about some of the ridiculous things people have been saying about Israel and Palestine. The further away from something we are, the less we know about it. The problem comes when you're in charge of administering aspects of how someone runs a country 500 miles away. So I'm interested in having government I can reach out and touch. I'm interested in government being very close to the action. And that's really what it's about for me. I know it will be difficult. I know it will be hard. There's a lot of risk involved with staying as well. The next thing is, in Scotland, we have very serious social problems. Uh, we have mo our homelessness, uh, our drug deaths, our child poverty, our educational attainment uh, problems. These are all, you know, per capita, worse than anywhere else in the UK. You'll have a lot of divergence about why that is. Some people will say that's to do with the SNP mismanaging things. Others will say it's to do with austerity. 
I personally think it's 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 partly to do with this issue of proximity. I think that we're seeing that the, the has we're seeing the the effects now of decisions that were taken maybe as far back as the Thatcher years in terms of deindustrialization, managed decline, and the and the and the speed at which that occurred in some places, and how dependent some communities were on these industries. Um, but there'll be evidence for every position, just like after an election. Uh, it's just about who can control the narrative, really. We have serious problems. We've not done enough in Scotland with the powers that we do have to tackle them. But I do think that the, the issue of independence um, will give us a chance to take full responsibility for our affairs. And, and, and then we'll truly see if our problems are a result of, of London mismanaging the British economy or if, like many other areas of life, it's just Scottish people pointing the finger at English people because it's, it's, it's an easy villain to blame. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we'll be back with Darren in a minute, but first... Israel, Palestine. No, wait, come back. Look, it's only going to be brief. And rather than go over all the stuff that's been talked about on this podcast before with guests from everything about the history of it all, the annexation of land that Trump allowed, anti-Semitism and how to talk about the state of Israel without being a massive racist and more, that's all been done on this show. And you can go back through the archives for that and also hear all my massively outdated jokes from when times were shit, but less shit. Ah, nostalgia. So I thought for this week's show, I'd just list a few things that are useful to know about the currently horrible violent situation in Gaza, and I shall make it as balanced as is possible when one of the weighing scales has $20 billion of arms on it. That's weapons, not limbs, I should say. I don't know how much one human arm costs or weighs, and I hope to never have to buy one, no matter how bad the comedy scene gets. The past week of horrific fuckery began when Israeli authorities started to evict Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah, a mostly Palestinian neighbourhood in East Jerusalem, and then tear-gassed a ton of worshippers at the Al-Asqa Mosque. Hamas and the Islamic Jihad responded by firing 1,500 rockets towards Israel, killing six civilians and injuring 70, and Israel then responded with airstrikes in Gaza, killing nearly 200 people. Obviously... That all started way before last week or last year or last decade or last century. But that's just this bit. And while all of this is arguable, if we just take it from this bit, 
you still can't even take it from this bit. How long have you got? Okay, let's sit down, get comfy. This bit, just this bit this past week, actually started with evictions in East Jerusalem, which Israel occupied in 1967 after the Arab-Israeli war, which is a whole other bit that led to that bit that we're not going to go into. Anyway, that move the UN condemned and still says is illegal. But Israel don't know, and neither did former US president, you should really get that scene to, yes, all of it, Donald Trump. Yes, you know, that classic arbiter of right and wrong. Ever since then, Israel has expanded its annexation of the area, and Jews born in the area are Israeli citizens, but Palestinians are only given conditional residency permits, like tenants in a statewide rented accommodation. And they live there under part limited self-rule, and mostly part Israeli military rule. Hence why Human Rights Watch have officially referred to it as an apartheid state. Back in January last year, Trump announced an Israeli-Palestine peace plan, which allowed Israel to incorporate all the settlements in the West Bank, which sounded super peaceful for one side, and much less so for the other. Despite denials from the Israeli government that that's what would happen, it really seemed like the Israeli state was going to annex any Palestinian properties in the area, which the UN warned would cause huge destabilisation and probably loads of violence and shit. Not exact words. And Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu dropped the idea for um, diplomatic reasons in order to open discussions with the United Arab Emirates about a normalisation of relations, as that would increase the standing of Israel with other Middle Eastern countries and the UAE, who basically helped kill lots of people in Yemen with a massive humanitarian crisis. And then Netanyahu said, Actually, the annexing was just suspended for a year, but then some evictions of Palestinians from their lifelong homes have been happening since anyway. And while all that was happening, Israel was pretty battered by coronavirus before the vaccination programme worked and their economy still screwed from it. There's been military battles with Iran and they've had their fourth election in two years due to a whole heap of mess about not approving state budgets in time. Oh, and Netanyahu being on trial for bribery, fraud and breach of trust in three separate cases, allegedly involving doing favours for gifts or positive news coverage in a way that the Conservatives would be proud of. Tons of citizens protested, calling for Benjamin Netanyahu to resign, but well, he hasn't, and then the election happened, and Netanyahu's party, Lukud, still got the majority of seats, because what kind of idiots vote for a corrupt party? Oh, wait, sorry, yeah, no, sorry, ignore me. Um, They gained 30 seats, but 61 is needed for a majority in the Knesset, so the opposition parties all plan to collate together to form a new government instead and end the run of the longest-serving leader. And then, oh shit, violence and the plans for a new coalition seem to have fallen through, with one of the more right-wing opposition parties talking with Benny about joining his crew instead. If no one manages to get it together and form a government by June the 2nd, the whole thing falls through and the country has to have a fifth election. Yeah, you see, you thought Brexit was stressful. Meanwhile, the Palestinian legislative election, which is very hard to say in one sentence, was meant to take place on April the 29th, after lengthy discussions between Hamas, who currently hold the majority of seats on the council, and Fatah, whose leader and sad bear Mahmoud Abbas is president. After tons of not getting on and so much political and violent to and fro that I'm not even going to begin with here, the April election date was to allow Palestinian citizens in East Jerusalem a vote in order to create national unity among Palestinians and potentially open up conversations with the UN, EU and Israel about a two-state solution. But then it got postponed as it wasn't clear Israel would allow citizens in East Jerusalem to vote and that fucked everything up and only about 6,300 citizens would be allowed to vote rather than the 150,000 who are eligible. And now no one knows when those elections might happen even though all the polls showed Fatah would gain a majority again over Hamas, which would have really calmed shit down. Got it? Good. Now, next bit to know is depressingly uh, about weapons. Hamas and the Islamic Jihad have some of them, though no one knows how many or where they are, and Israeli military won't share their estimates. But they've got mostly ground-to-ground missiles that are being made somewhere in the Gaza Strip, and some experts say Iran has assisted with this, but again, no one really knows for sure. Of the 1,500 fired in the last week, about 90% have been destroyed by Israel's Iron Dome defence system, and some have also fallen short of their target and hit Palestinian areas too. 
The Palestinians have no real scope for any sort of military strategy as they can't go anywhere. And the last time Israel planned a ground operation to stifle missile fire, 2,251 Palestinians, more than half of them civilians, were killed and 67 Israeli soldiers and six civilians died, which is just bleak as fuck. On the other side, Israel's defence budget is over $20 billion, more than 5% their GDP, and they're the 14th biggest buyers of weapons in the world. Where do they buy them from? Well, you guessed it, Britain and mostly American companies. BAE Systems over here, Lockheed Martin and Boeing across the pond. Israel buys a ton of combat aircraft, F-35s, F-15s and F-16s, which are all planes that bomb and shoot things, like, you know, buildings where the press are or buildings that families live in. They're not the keys at the top of your keyboard, uh, as I thought, though I understand some shortcuts that those can do are very worthwhile. The US provides $3.8 billion or 20% of Israel's aid budget and nearly three-fifths of US foreign military financing, followed by $1.3 billion, $350 million to Israel's neighbours Egypt and Jordan as part of US's pledge to defend Israel at whatever cost. Israel is required to spend most of that aid money on military equipment from US companies. But the US is not to sell weapons to other Middle Eastern countries that are more sophisticated than the ones they sell Israel. Hey, we've all been in relationships like that, right? The US also funds and improves the Iron Dome defence system, and in fact the US supplies Israel with so many weapons that Israel then exports most of them and is now the 8th largest arms exporter in the world. Which does make you sort of think, the US are missing a trick there, I can't quite work out what it is. Anyway, that's arms as in weapons, not people's arms, we've been through all of this. Israel reportedly has the most powerful military in the Middle East, and in the US the entire Republican Party and most of the Democrats back the Jewish state, so it's unlikely to stop regardless of what happens in Gaza, which is probably really going to limit the possibilities of any two-state solution if the big states aren't that keen to intervene. Oh, and also, just for context, uh, you might need it, apartheid is a system of institutionalised segregation and war crimes are violations of the laws of war that give rise to individual criminal responsibility, which include intentionally killing civilians, destroying civilian property and violating the principles of proportionality and military necessity. I just thought you might need to know. So, there you go. That's a lot of jigsaw pieces to the puzzle that show it's not really a puzzle at all, just a lot of money trumping any consideration for human life yet again. A Palestinian legislative election may help things. God, I said it again. I don't know how I did that. Netanyahu being kicked out of office, or better yet, being arrested for corruption would help things a lot more. America and the UK and Europe too, deciding human lives are better than arms sales would be really useful, but that is unlikely to happen. So, the best hope is international pressure from people, from elected officials, and anyone who thinks what is happening is disproportionate and upsetting. Write to your MPs, support protests and campaigns, and a few of those uh, I've shouted out on here before, but do check out Medical Aid for Palestine at map.org.uk and donate if you can. There are also groups like Jewish Voice for Peace at jvp.org.uk, and on Twitter, uh, Omdembeya Chad, the Standing Together campaign, or standing-together.org, which is a movement in Israel for peace and social justice, and has been organising protests in Tel Aviv against the Israeli government. And now, back to Darren. I was going to say, one of the things with independence, I wonder if it would be better. And in fact, it, it was one of the things that your, your show, Class Wars, really, I, I knew about and I didn't know to the extent, but the amount of land ownership in Scotland, it's just where the vast amounts of land owned by very wealthy people that the public don't have access to. And I sort of, Maybe that's a very naive thing, but in my head, I sort of felt like Scottish independence might allow that to be reclaimed a bit or laws to come in that would allow it to be reclaimed because it very much feels like that's a lot of English people's doing. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Well, the, the, obviously in Britain, we, we've got, we have, as much as this is a modern society and it's a liberal social democracy, and there are aspects of our society which have advanced, you know, multiculturalism, 
um, quality of life for people of, of lower social classes has improved, universal healthcare, education, all of these things. I would never deny Britain is, is, is a decent place to live compared to a lot of other places that you could be born in. But right at the very core of Britain, uh, we still have these conceptions of things like property, hereditary privilege, patriarchal structures, uh, which very much go back to the ancient world and haven't changed a great deal. A lot of the language around them has changed, but right at the core of Britain, then, you know, from crime and punishment um, to how we to how we talk about our children and treat our children, you know, this idea of discipline and particularly in educational institutions. We only outlawed the belt uh, 20 years ago in Britain. Wow. And so, you know, for the whole time that education has existed, it's been, it's been uh, obligatory for a teacher to physically assault a child in front of other children in a class for not achieving a certain grade. That talk, that speaks to Britain underneath the bonnet of the car, you know, and and so I think when it comes to land ownership, what you're getting there is a real uh, a, a, a real insight into um, how hidden the real power often is. And when I say power, I'm not talking about Illuminati sitting thinking about, oh, here's how we're going to take over the world and all that. I'm just talking about people who are very, very disengaged from the rest of society. And no one knows who they are. No one knows where they live. But they own most of the land. And when you actually start to look at the, you know, the same, you know, you've got the same, the same kind of number of families have owned most of the land in Britain for hundreds of years. And then you've got these foreign conglomerates all coming into the picture as well. What it all translates to is whoever owns the land sets the price for everybody that works, lives and plays there. So whether you're a property developer or whether you're the Duke of Buclou, if, uh, if you own the land, then the, the, the economic future of everyone either on your land or around your land is dependent on what you decide to do with your land. And if you decide that you're not going to sell it to a community buyout who want to develop it in accordance with environmental tourism, and a greener future and creating an environment that, that kids don't want to leave a community to go to London or Edinburgh, but want to stay there and have their families. You've got to go and ask the Duke of Buclou and then you've got to find £10 million. And it just makes no sense. But I think that, you know, land ownership, as I say, is one of those issues a bit like monarchy, um, which is intrinsic to land ownership. Um, then, you know, it, it says a lot about how far Britain still has to go to drag itself into the 21st century. Yeah, it's so far, isn't it? It's so fucking far. I am, I mean, one, one of the things I, I just, I've always uh, admired about what you do is not, not just because your own experiences, but you're so good at talking to just normal people. And I, it sounds so silly, doesn't it? But that doesn't happen very often at all. And as you said, so many people um, who, who are in power set the precedent for how things go. And therefore, mm. every sort of conversation we have about class is inflammatory, divisive. It's about flags and statues rather than what are you going through? What do we need to make these people's lives better? And I, I just yeah. wondered, like, A, how, in, how infuriating do you find that as someone who actually... You, you know, actually talks to people and, and, and kind of finds out what issues are properly. But but also, like, what what is the way that we, we 
change that? And, and can we change that when the people with money are the people that still dictate how, how the media present everything? Yeah, you, obviously you had the, the other day you had a bit of a ding dong going on on social media with Grace Bleakley and her kind of public <laughs> school Marxism, right? And you know, no harm to her or, or people at Novara Media and all that. Although I do, I do think that they have a certain kind of aesthetic and a, a certain kind of look. It's almost as if they are trying to design something that will repel working people you know what I mean like it's it, 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 it it's an unfortunate paradox of a certain kind of leftism that's immersed in theory so that's why I like to get out and talk to people because when you understand a wee bit of the theory then you can go out and and um you, you're not so you're not so pressed to try and shoehorn or or, or force reality into the theory because when you go out, you, you go, okay, there's a theoretical world, then there's a real world. People like talking about class when it relates to their accent because they have experiences they can draw from. And so then they feel included in the conversation about it. People like to talk about, you know, what are their experiences of employment? What are their experiences of education? You don't need to be hammering at home all the time that, you're you're working class because of your proximity to the means of production. It's nothing to do with your accent. You know what I mean? Like, where does that get you? At the end of the day, these are all issues that are based roughly around uh, social class or our perceptions of social class. And for me, all you're trying to do is you're trying to help someone to locate themselves within a context where everyone is individuated. And everyone has a sense that they're part of a social class. Everyone has a sense that there are barriers out there, but no one's talking to each other in order to get that validation that, oh, you're thinking the same as me, or you got judged for your accent, or you changed the way you talked when you went to college or university. Ah, I did that too. And so, you know, everybody's kind of fragmented. I just try to create conversations where... Um, people can see themselves in a wider context and get that 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 feeling that they're not the only one. I'm not going to be the person on the front line firing the starting gun of a revolution. I'm interested in building consciousness around issues. I'm interested in building self-esteem in people. I'm interested in education and radical forms of education, not in order to get someone involved in my politics, but just so that they can fucking read. That's what I care about. Um, but I'm 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 not necessarily uh, I'm not necessarily interested in trying to shoehorn people into my ideology because I, I think my ideology changes depending on who I'm around and what I'm reading. You know, I, I read broadly, I associate with people broadly, and I find that my my kind of the ferocity of my politics rises and falls depending on what's going on. I'm not constantly immersed in one worldview. And, and what, what I might lose in terms of a sense of political certainty or ideological certainty, I think, again, in being able to engage with a broad range of people. And the left needs that as well. Yeah, it's, it's what's, it, I mean, what you're talking about is you're a human being and you're affected by what surrounds you and what you're and who you're talking yeah. to and the things you're interested in. And I think it's what's sort of so often uh, ignored in all of our kind of discourses, you know, like like we were talking about the Hartlepool, the working man or whatever they sort of say. And it's like everyone's individual. Everyone's got their own shit. Everyone's got their own issues. Everyone mm. might have, 
you know, you're not taking into account everything that's going on. I mean, it's something that's been really evident in the past year of like, not only have people had financial issues, they've also had home issues. And then if they're not got issues with family, they might have issues with loneliness. It's all, there's so much that makes a person feel how they feel. And we just sort of go, ah, you're all the working class. Oh, you're all the middle class. So you're all black people, you're all white people. And it's, it's so, uh, you know, we just sort of group people and then decide that we'll deal with them as a group rather than as a person. So dehumanizing. Yeah. And it, Yes, and it, that, that's that's one of the drawbacks of, of, of the language of class. And there are many, don't get me wrong. I just think that currently we don't have a better concept in terms of uh, describing the forces that create class inequality and class division. Um, and and while obviously Marx, uh, while class is attributed a lot of the time to, to Marx and then by proxy to the Soviet Union and all of this sort of stuff, you know, the forces that Marx and others were attempting to, to describe with the class terminology preceded all of them by hundreds of years. You know, it's a bit like saying gravity didn't exist until Newton gave it a name. <laughs> it's it, You know, fair enough, dismiss Marx, dismiss the left, dismiss socialism, point to all the examples where it's been tried out and capitalism's forced it into extreme iterations. But at the same time, you can't dispute that these forces were the forces that created the Peasants' Revolt. These forces created the French Revolution. And and people have simply just tried to put a name to them by talking about class. What what do you think? This is a big old question, so I'm sorry for throwing this in at the end. But, you know, you know I think one of the things that I always notice is how exhausting i mean i'm, I'm middle class uh i'm, I'm still and uh, fuck all and, and live in a rented flat and there's lots of aspects of my life that i suppose are work class but i'm middle class right um mm. but being middle class being working class at the moment is exhausting zero hours work is exhausting people are doing two jobs low-paid work their benefit systems exhaust everything about it is knocking time out of your life so you've got no time to do anything and kind of galvanize or you know what 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 are the ways do you think to empower people? I mean, like I keep sort of going back to Friday just because it was so nice to see a community coming together to stop something, to do something, to do an action. And we don't see that very often anymore. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I wondered what you think like the important ways to kind of empower people or, or to, to, yeah, to be able I mean, to change it, things. It, up. it all just depends on what people want, you know, because Some people, I think, and they're quite entitled to think this, and sometimes I feel that way myself, that there is a sort of, there is a kind of humility and an admirable sense of acceptance about people who accept that they are part of the lower orders. They accept that they're always going to have to work hard. They accept their job in Asda or their delivery driver job. And I think sometimes people from my distance think that that's some kind of like willing serfdom. When actually, and, and you know, especially when they're, they're celebrating the Queen or they're voting Conservative and they think, well, how could you do this pleb? Look at the economic conditions that you're in. But actually, sometimes these kind of collective celebrations of things like the Queen or the nation, then what that means to a person from a lower class background is them connected to something bigger than themselves. So that becomes symbolic of them reaching across class divides because what they see is I'm reaching across from my poorer community, my poorer background and connecting up with people from middle class backgrounds, aristocratic backgrounds, because we all share this belief in the nation. We all share this belief in the queen. And so it's a kind of religious or spiritual experience for people. It's not, it's not as kind of, 
it's it's not as sort of blind and subservient as a lot of people think. And I think there's a lot of ways that people cl- plug into those kind of mains through different means. So some people don't want change the way that other, people's, other people do. And it's not because they don't struggle. It's because they recognise that some of the problems that we have with British society are as a result of us having expectations that it should be better because it is good <laughs> and that's where those expectations come from you know what I mean so it's like we we have no gauge what how shit it is to live in other places we're living in a place where we can actually go and lie under an immigration van and not get shot you know what I mean and so there's got to be a balance between saying here's what we're fighting for you know and here's what upsets me and also is today the day to go on Twitter and complain about the about being misgendered by a raid a a, a, a a train announcer? You know, is this the day to do that? You know, that's your personal choice. Somebody might make the decision. That's not a big deal with me. Somebody else might. And 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 so it's all about a person's personal choice of what are they fighting for and what do they want to do. But if you do want change, then I think what you got to do is you've got to go out into your community and you've got to find other people. You got to talk to them, and you got to accept that you don't all may have agreements about things, and you got to accept that you know not everybody's going to pass your purity test. But you can't build a movement that doesn't contain people who have said and done things that would get them cancelled. And so I think this is a big problem for the left just now. Um, you know, when I looked at the Green Party p- before the election there, and I did end up voting for them. But, you know, I've been approached by the Green Party at points to be a bit more involved. And I, I think they can see that they, they lack a kind of working classness that, that might be useful um, for them and also for environmental issues. But I just get the sense that, you know, being part of the Green Party would just leave me vulnerable to like, you know, a tweet from 10 years ago or some song that I wrote when I was full of Valium or, or something <laughs> that I said to someone that I don't even remember. You know, coming out and 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 really the Green Party not being best place to protect me. <laughs> yeah, you know? well, it's, it's why I've always I, been. I've always been amazed, like when comedians uh, affiliate properly with a political party, and I'm always like, "Are you sure?" Because you'll have mm. jokes from ten years ago that are gonna get this party in trouble. They'll get you in trouble, and it, it, there's no room for again for human, for, for like we were talking about earlier for learning, changing. There's none of that in politics uh, and in political party yeah. world. So. As soon as you say, oh, yeah, I'm now running for this party or I fully support this, then you're like, I don't know, then then everyone's going to leap on you for, for anything you've done and, and it'll yeah. affect them in the same way. One of the challenges of having very youth-driven, <clears throat> one of the challenges of having very youth-driven politics is that while you have young people who have a lot of energy and enthusiasm and desire and belief that change can occur, and these are all extremely important, you also have naivety and you have life and experience. And so a lot of young people, they can come at it from a hyper-moral point of view because they're not morally compromised yet. You haven't become morally compromised by a relationship breakdown, by an infidelity, by a slip of the tongue, um, or worse. They haven't become morally compromised by having to do something to make a quick bit of cash. Um or developing a drug habit or addiction that's that's morally deformed them. When you get to a certain age in life, you're morally compromised for something. You've done something, you've said something, you're 
in that hero journey. Everyone has their belly of the beast moment where they're like, I need to change. And then they move forward. See, when you're 18, 19, you're not aware of the harm you're doing. You're seeing yourself as a force for good. And you're perceiving yourself sometimes as a victim of other people's transgressions. And then when you internalise that victim identity, you exclude all other possibilities of what the results of your behaviour are. Because that certainly did when I was young. I had every right in the world to see myself as a victim of abuse and neglect and poverty and government and big systems. And it wasn't until I got into recovery a few years ago, I started realising, hang on, man, you were a bit selfish. You were abusive at points, you know, to friends, to women. Uh, you've said things that you would actually cringe about now. Uh, you've had to apologise to people, places, institutions for your behaviour. And these are all things I would never have known or thought to even look at when I was a young person, you know. And so that's a problem when you have young people who are highly idealistic with no with little life experience, immersed in theory, driving politics and political discourse. Then you have a lot of older people who are a bit longer in the tooth, who one, just feel a bit patronised and two, think, well, hang on then. I'm going to need some new allies if these are the people who think they're speaking for me. <laughs> and, and you know, I think that is a big dimension of what we have now. Nobody wants to be the, the old man yelling at a cloud. But I do think in activist communities, we have to have a chain of command that says, OK, you're 12. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you're 12, I'm, 30, I'm 38, right? So let's, let's uh, earn our stripes here before we start. Uh, before we start like redefining words <laughs> at least that's before it. we start redefining words that's it and I also like you left out the, the middle aged people who are too tired to do anything and to be of any <laughs> use because of being parents and they're like I don't fucking care anymore just if you can look after my kids for an hour I'll have a sleep and you guys get on with it that's the uh, yeah. <laughs> that's why we're not involved in anything um <laughs> Oh man, you also made me realise that there's not a day it doesn't go by where I'm not so grateful there wasn't social media when I was a teenager and I still I still think I've got away with far too much in life because of that. Um, Matt, yeah. th Darren, thank you so much for joining me. I, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And uh, uh, the last question, which is something that I ask everyone on this on this podcast, just with the hope of furthering good information really, is just, um, apart from yourself and your book and your music and, and your TV shows, obviously, uh, are there people that you go to for info or opinions or politics? Are there people that you particularly like following or websites you particularly like going to? Who would you recommend? My my sort of information and news diet is based on wanting to have an insight into what people from all sides of the kind of spectrum or up and down the axis are thinking at any point on a certain issue. So obviously I'm 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 left wing in terms of my beliefs. But I do enjoy consuming content and analysis from all across the board. So if I'm looking for something that's a bit more kind of traditional left wing um, in terms of, you know, dismantling capitalism left wing, not the Guardian left wing, then, you know, I, I enjoy quite a lot of American content for that. You know, um, the, I, I don't like the Novara media stuff. I'm not into that kind of. I'm not into the Grace Bleakley and Aaron Bastini and all of that. I'm sure they're nice people, but it just doesn't speak to me because I'm a genuinely working class person. Um, so in America, Kyle Kaczynski is good. Peter Coffin for more cultural issues. Um, Contrapoints for 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 kind of more deeper analysis of stuff. And then in, in terms of get, getting a gauge for what the Tories, where the Tories are at on certain issues, obviously the spectator, you always have to check in there, even if you're reading absolute lunacy 
from somebody <laughs> like Rod Lido. And most of the newspapers, you know, I'll dip into throughout the course of the week. So I would I would encourage people to have a broad news diet while at the same time retaining your your own moral compass because you need to know what other people think if you really want to debate with them. You're a stronger man than me reading the spectator too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How good was that? I was so pleased Darren was up for being on the show. Uh, You can, of course, find his recent TV documentary, Class Wars, on the iPlayer, and it's such a brilliant watch, I couldn't recommend it enough. Um, Darren's book, Poverty Svari, is also uh, very available everywhere, and despite being released three years ago, is still so depressingly relevant and so very well written. Uh, you can find Darren himself at Loki Scottish Rap on Twitter, Loki Scottish Rapper on Instagram, and his website is darrenmcgarvey.com, where you can find links to his music, writing, absolutely everything else he does too. If you have someone, something, somewhere out there, if love can see us through. Sorry, I got a bit carried away. But if there's an issue I haven't talked to someone about on this here show or I need to cover again, drop me a line or a squiggle or even, which would be better, squiggles that make letter shapes and work together as words. And you can do that to at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could just pass it on by hugging, but with things as they are, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Always leave them wanting less. That's what I say. That's the big plan, you see. Just to make each episode of this show more and more unappealing until there's only a handful of you listeners left and I can spend each episode individually insulting all of you until the number is zero. And I can finally stop doing this podcast, ignore the news forever, and just write comedy about, oh, isn't bread so bread-like? What's that all about? The dream. The real dream. Of course, I joke. I'm very pleased you're here, and as far as I'm concerned, there's too much bread-based comedy in the world already. So why not make sure I have to keep doing this show and ruining my Mondays by encouraging others to indulge in some pod-to-ear action and having a listen and maybe even a subscribe. You can also review the show on podcast apps with a sweet five stars and some nice words so that I feel guilty that were I to stop, I would immediately make your life worse. And perhaps even donate some hard cash or soft cash, if you like, to ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, or via the ACAR supporter button. So all of this feels like a job and I have less of a choice about it unless I fire my boss, which would make living with myself pretty awkward. Big thank yous to Acast, my brother last skeptic, Cat Day, and of course, the late, great Katie Coxell. This will be back next week when Matt Hancock announces that the new variant is absolutely of no concern while it eats him mid-interview. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Both Sides. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 